I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back, beautiful mamas. So many of us at some point in this experience of motherhood are going to find ourselves facing something confronting, terrifying, overwhelming. Perhaps it might be months and months of broken sleep that you honestly wonder how you can get through. Perhaps it's the breakdown of your relationship. Perhaps it's a health diagnosis for yourself. Or like the guest on our podcast today, it is a diagnosis for one of your children. Laura Trotter is an amazing mama. She is an online sustainable living educator. If you want to know anything about living more environmentally friendly, getting off the grid, growing your own vegetables, making your house sustainable, please go and have a look at her work. She's also a very successful online business coach and she's been on my previous podcast before. But Laura recently reached out to me wanting to talk to all of you about what she's been through. After her son was diagnosed, she has been through a deep, dark time, a time of great challenge and overwhelm, but also a time of great joy and gratitude. And as she shares in this episode, although she is by no means out the other end, She felt it was important to connect with the Happy Mama audience. She wanted to speak to you directly about what she's going through to start a conversation about the middle part of the challenges we face in motherhood and in life. So often we hear about it when mamas and women come out the other end and it is a great privilege to be able to share with you her experience as she's still moving through it because each of us are going to face different challenges. Each of us will have to find grace and grit and resilience. Each of us will have to learn how to deeply nurture and nourish ourselves while we support others. I know that this is going to be a podcast that is shared far and wide. Enjoy. This is the Happy Mama Movement, a weekly podcast dedicated to changing the conversation about what it means to be a mother and a woman in this day and age. I'm Amy Taylor-Cabaz, author, mama, and former journalist. After spending 15 years chasing news and burning myself out trying to be superwoman, I realized that I was chasing a dream that no longer served me. And since then, 
have dedicated myself to understanding the transition that we go through as women when our whole identity shifts with motherhood. Every week, I will bring you the very best insights and inspiration I can find to help us all change the way we feel about this time in our lives and create a movement that allows us to honour motherhood differently. Laura, welcome to the Happy Mama Movement podcast. I'm so grateful that we get to talk again. It's been years since we've really connected and shared your story with the Happy Mama audience. So welcome. Thanks for having me back, Amy. So our intention for this episode of the podcast is really to have a heartfelt and honest conversation around some of the challenges that come from motherhood. I know because I've known you for years now that motherhood has really stretched you and made you make some pretty big decisions in your life, which is what matrescence is all about and what we do here at Happy Mama. But just recently, it has thrown you another challenge and that has been the diagnosis of one of your children. And our intention, both of us, as we've spoken about for this episode, is to just have a heartfelt and honest conversation about this, about how you're navigating this and how you've felt about it and how you're looking after yourself because there's a lot of mamas and dads going through this. So I'm really grateful that you reached out to me and want to share this with me and my audience. Yeah, and, and I'm I'm grateful too. I, I have mentioned to you as well, Amy, like I kind of feel like I'm in the thick of things at the moment and the old me kind of waits until I'm at the end of the journey and I can look back and say, oh, wow, that was tough, but I got through that and now I'm ready to help others. But I kind of think back to where I was a year ago and putting myself in a position where I had received my son's autism spectrum disorder diagnosis and I kind of think, gee, I would have liked to have heard what I know that we're going to talk about today back then and I haven't got it all worked out. There's still days where I'm crying by myself in my bedroom or calling a friend or thinking I I can't do this right now, like even as recently as last week. But I know I'm in a much better place than I was six months ago and you know, and I know I'm going to, I see the value in talking about it now for your audience, but also for me. Yes. Beautiful. And I, and I want this to be a space for all the mamas listening where, yes, sometimes I do interview the experts who have the answers, but I want this to feel like a community where we're we're doing this together. We would be sitting around a dining room table or a lounge room and having these conversations because this is how we should be supporting each other in motherhood. So I'm so grateful that you're ready to talk about this, even though you're not at the other end of it. So thank you. So for the mamas that don't know, because let's just do a little bit of um, contextualising here. You have two boys the eldest being nine. So you've been in this beautiful matrescence discovering yourself for the last 10 years through motherhood. And before motherhood arrived, you were very um, 
corporate-focused, ambition-focused and in with all the men in a really interesting industry because I think this is important to understand how much our life changes with these challenges of motherhood. So can you take us back? Yeah, for sure. Um, I I like how you say that because I think I still am achievement-focused. I think that's very hard to knock out of my psyche. Oh, Um, yes. yes. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) A-type, achievement type, it's they're always there and I do battle with that and that's still my one of my biggest battles at the moment. But, um, yeah, going back, so I'm, I'm in my 40s now. I'm about to turn 42. I'm an environmental engineer and I've worked in the sustainability space for, oh, gosh, it's almost 24 years working or studying. So I was very achievement-focused. I've always loved sustainability and improving the environment. It's my biggest passion in life, apart from my family and my kids, I guess. But um, yeah, I I did very well at uni and I won a scholarship with a minerals company who were looking to, um, funny enough, <laughs> they looked at their workforce and that's all oh, men, we need to bring some women in. Let's go to the universities and see if we can find some female engineering students. Um, back then, it was only around about 4% of engineers in Australia were female. So we're talking about 1996. And this company, Pazminka, was called, was trying to do something different to, to change that. Um, just incidentally, at this point in time, 2019, the Australian Bureau of Statistics have found that it's about 15% of engineers in Australia are female now. Wow. So there's been quite a movement, but it's still a long ways to go. But anyway, so yeah, 19 years of age working in a zinc mine in the mountains on the west coast of Tasmania, the first female to live in the single men's quarters. So that kick-started a very long and successful career for me in the minerals industry and I got to live and work and travel all over Australia in mines and smelters, mostly in the outback, so far northwest Queensland for four years living in a mining camp. Um, and an amazing large zinc mine working with Australia's traditional owners um, to the largest industrial site in Australia, Australia, the Olympic Dam mine, smelter, refinery, processing plant in outback South Australia where I worked as a senior engineer for five years. And, in fact, it was at that operation where I was working when um, I fell pregnant with my first son, so 10 years ago this year. And, um, yeah, that that catalyzed the big change in me, I guess, um, falling, I won't say falling into motherhood, it was planned, but I never really um, knew, I never really, I couldn't see how big a change it was going to be, you know, Mm. and it was such a big change for, for a great change, but very hard at times. Because when you decided, as you said, you chose that you'd like to welcome a baby and and become a mother, it wasn't a straightforward process. And it really, I just think it's so fascinating when we look back at the transformation we go through when we choose motherhood, whether we fall pregnant accidentally, surprisingly, and choose it then, or whether we very much choose it before conception. We our life begins to change dramatically from that moment. And that's what happened with you, wasn't it? Yeah, indeed. We, um, As I said, we were living in remote South Australia and we were having problems conceiving. Um, and we were having, well, IVF ended up being the way we fell pregnant, but IVF involved us tra- doing a 1,200-kilometre trip 
return trip to Adelaide and back home again to have treatment and then being in Adelaide for 10 days, any of your listeners that have undergone IVF know that it's like a 10-day cycle. You go down, you get the treatment, you get the egg pickup and then you wait and have them implanted, the embryo hopefully implanted in inside you and, you know, just because of the distance, couldn't just to and fro all the time or maintain going to work in that time. So it really impacted my career at that time. And I was at a very senior level in the organization and on that whole IVF roller coaster, which was hard. And it was particularly hard because um, I grappled with this as well, because the reason we were going through IVF was because of a male fertility issue. And meanwhile, everyone assumed that it was, you know, me or, you know, my body letting me down in a way. So I carried a uh, frustration with that, but we didn't openly talk about that. We said, well, this is our issue. We're going to own it as our issue. But everyone, we didn't tell many people, but the people that we did tell, it was just like an assumption that it's the female yeah. issue, yeah. Um, which was harder. But of course, IVF, regardless of, you know, if it's the male issue or a female issue or a male and female issue, it's the female that has to go through the treatment. It really sucks. Exactly. Yeah. And um, I guess... That was one of the first lessons in acceptance for me. I was in Adelaide having to undergo all this, but my, you know, my husband at the time could still maintain his job and career and no one know about it in his team. He could still perform at work, whereas um, it was impacting on my performance. Um, yeah, it was hard. And that really was the start of you deciding to change your career, to mm-hmm. start your own business, which you've phenomenally successfully done over the last 10 years, building a couple of online businesses now and and sharing with thousands of women. And I don't know if you have men in your programs, but thousands of families um, around Australia and the world. But that beautiful baby that was with the toing and froing of the trips from Roxby Downs to Adelaide all those years ago, that that I don't want to use the word challenge because uh, I, I don't want it to ever feel like for any of us that this is, you know, something that's a burden. But the growth, let's use the word growth, Laura. <laughs> the growth from that beautiful boy has continued right up until recently. What What's happened? Yeah, well, let me describe what he was like as a baby. He was the most beautiful, settled happy, engaging baby anyone could wish for. I still remember in the maternity ward, one of the midwives just picking him up and taking him on a lap around the ward to visit all the nurses. She just fell in love with him because he was just so chilled. Um, You know, he was a baby that I think just a few days old, slept seven hours at night. That was the night I got mastitis because my boobs couldn't handle it. Um, (laughs) You know, we had to wake him to feed him. He was quite a sleepy baby. And that was a baby that I built my first successful business around, sustain a baby. Um, not that he was, the, you know, he woke up a few weeks later and he wasn't, you know, the best sleeper, but he wasn't a baby that cried and screamed. He was a very happy baby, would wake up goo-goo-garring and just a real pleasure to parent. And he was like that as a toddler, where he would go up to everyone and smile and beam and everyone would fall in love with this beautiful little boy. He was very creative. I think I could see his creativity in him at a very young age, so much so that, we, you know, in Roxby there was this amazing dance academy 
and he was always dancing to the wiggles and whatever. So I thought, oh, dancing is probably going to be good for him. And sure enough, by the age of three, he was doing jazz and tap and he was the only boy in the class, but he just loved it and owned the stage and would just, you know, get massive claps and almost a standing ovation at the end of year concert where he would steal the show and he still loves performing to this day. So he was this very happy preschool boy. And then same in kindergarten and he had some great friends in kindergarten and starting school he had friends. But when I think back, we lived in this small town and on the first day of school he knew all the kids because we lived in this small town. Half of the class were in my mum's group from the hospital five years earlier. Wow. So we had this group of kids that had played together week in and week out since they were babies and that was who he went to school with. He was very secure with these kids. That class, there were something like 44 children in this prep or foundation reception class. I mean, it's called different things in different states. And there were two teachers and they divvy it up. But it was a very dynamic, big class. Now, my son was always a great reader. He always gravitated towards books. So he was in the advanced reading group. And that's an important thing to remember at the moment. I'll come back to that. But he kind of sailed through the first year at school with some close friends, but he did some, he'd do some quirky things. Still remember the first couple of days at school, I'd go to pick him up and the teacher said, oh, just, you know, we've had an incident today. Matthew was, you know, he'd gone to the toilet and he has to take all his clothes off to go to the toilet. And of course he was in there for a while and, you know, was, got stressed because he was missing out on lunchtime. And next thing he's running around in the playground without his jocks, shorts, shoes on, just with a polo shirt. (laughs) You know, one of the older kids has got the teacher and, you know, and that happened the first two days until we kind of, you know, transitioning to school. But it wasn't a big deal and it was a large classroom, so much so at the end of the year there'd been a couple of students that had left and the numbers had dropped and there was enough for one year one class but there were about five kids too many. So they put the readers the best readers in the class up into a combined one-two class, but it was really a year two class with five year ones. Mm. So my son was chosen to go into that class. And that was the year where he, I guess, sorry, that's a remove um, garbage truck going past. That's okay. Yeah. And so that was the year where I guess we started just noticing that things were a little bit different. So primarily when he was friends with all these boys, they couldn't never, they would always be running around and none of them could sit still. But some of them were starting to learn how to sit still, whereas my son still couldn't sit still. And in fact, he'd always be falling off his chair at the tea table. He still couldn't hold a pen right. Um, still to this day can't hold a pencil right. The pencil grip's just wrong and his handwriting's atrocious. And I just thought that it was because it was such a big class in that first year at school and because he was an advanced reader, they just forgot it, you know, let him go and they were working on the kids that needed the more help. So in year one, he got really anxious too because he wasn't with his close friends. He was put up into this other class and he'd come home from school sucking. He would have sucked all these, you know, the collar on his rugby top and he was starting to suck his arms. There was like hickey marks down his arms and, and not sleep very well, but he couldn't really talk to me about what was going on. I mean, he's still only six years old or something at that stage. And then the teachers recommended maybe go to an OT and get an assessment done. So 
we came down to Adelaide and had both of my sons, my, even my younger boy as well, go through an OT assessment. And my youngest son at the moment, we were doing intense speech therapy because he was a very late in talking and he had a lot of rep- repetitive tasks. And he was the one I was watching really closely thinking something's not right here. Even um, the, the director at the Early Learning Centre had said, you know, keep an eye on him. He's showing a lot of rep- repetitive traits. We went to a paediatrician. He was on close watch. He ticked a lot of red flags for autism. So I was w- looking at my youngest son. But then when I went with the assessment with both of my sons to the OT, the OT flagged that my youngest son sailed through most of the tests. It was my older son and the pen group and this falling, this low muscle tone, all these other things came into play. But she never actually said the A word, autism. It was more like we need to get him help to strengthen his hand grip and some muscle toning exercise and I recommend some more OT. So when we got back to Roxby, he started having some OT, you know, with with the travelling occupational therapist that would come to town. But, of course, there were other kids that had high needs and he would get bumped off the list and it kind of, you know, it kind of didn't get worse. And then so much so in the, in the next year when he went into year two, he was back into the main class with all his friends and he was happy again and he was back with his best buddies. He was doing well at school again and he had a teacher who he liked and who liked him and all of those little quirks, he stopped sucking his arm, sucking his collar. I just thought, I mean, I thought it was anxiety hmm. and it all died down. So that was the end of year, that was year two, so only a couple of years ago. Um, there's been massive changes in our family since then. So at the end of year two, going into the start of his year three year, so this is at the start of last year, twenty. 18, we moved house. So we moved from this small town in the outback to Adelaide. And for a couple of years, we'd been building our new home. We'd been planning this move for a long time. Um, on a side note, I was selected to go down to Antarctica with a heap of female scientists from around the world. So I was going to be away from home for five weeks. So I was like, how's this all going to work? I was worrying about my younger son who had a tendency to get anxious thinking, how's all this going to cope? So I, you know, plugged my mother into my family to backfill me while I was away. Um, but she was looking after my family in Adelaide, coincided with my kids starting a new school. Um, everything happened at the same time. And we'd moved the, the, the weeks leading up to leaving Roxby Downs and starting Adelaide. My eldest son was really stressed out you know, he was crying all the time. We had to take photos of every room of the house so he could remember everything as it was. I still remember things like giving our chickens away to one of our friends because we were going to be living in an Airbnb in Adelaide while our new house was getting built. I remember both kids just screaming, like, because our chickens were going and, like, all this change. And I'm just thinking, oh, you know, we've been talking about this for so long. I I thought I'd prepared them so well. I couldn't have prepared them any better. Adelaide was a place we'd always come down for all our appointments, all our shopping, anything, any specialist appointment, bang, you do that 12 kilometre round, 1200 kilometre round trip to Adelaide. In fact, I had to do it to even have my kids in the first place because we couldn't give birth in Roxby. It was that 1200 kilometre round trip, stay there for six weeks to have a baby and then bring your newborn back when they're two or three weeks old back to Roxby. So 
we'd been coming to Adelaide for years and they knew it. I didn't think I could prepare them any better. But anyway, coming, came down to Adelaide and I was here with the family and settling the boys into the new school for two weeks before I had to depart for five weeks to Antarctica. Now, in those two weeks, my eldest son stopped talking and he was just making like grunts or like animal noises. I remember I'm thinking, okay, I'll get him, I'll get him into a new dance school. That's what he loves to do. At least if I can get him into doing something that he loves and he's confident at, that'll help him transition. And I still remember sitting on the side of this hip-hop class and just looking at him, hopping around on the floor like a frog, making frog noises, not doing the dances, not talking, just shutting down totally, looking at him thinking, I almost burst into tears, but I think that's not my kid. Like what, what is going on? And, I, I mean, I didn't go back to that class we ended up, had a good chat with my sister who's a doctor and she was basically explained some of the behaviour to me and she said, you've got to get him into a paediatrician as soon as possible. Um, and, yeah, work, it's obviously extreme anxiety with the move, um, but obviously this is some more sensory behaviours happening and basically get an assessment, get some help. It could be X, Y, Z, but get to the doctor, get some support and see what happens. So... I basically had to jump on the on the planes and head on over to Argentina and Antarctica and hand over my kids. Well, my youngest son was doing well, but my older son was just literally falling apart in front of my eyes. I had to hand him over to my mother, who hasn't really had much to do with them since they were born because we live so far apart. She came over to to basically, you know, backfill me in the family for five weeks, and you know, she had the list of all the appointments to take him to and basically work through it for five weeks while I wasn't there. How did that feel? How did you feel getting onto that plane? Like every mother who's listening is is holding their breath listening to this story. And I know so many of us have this pull. I actually did a podcast on it recently called Competing Devotions. We Mm -hmm. have competing devotions of going to Antarctica. Oh my God, that would be dream come true and at the same time your child is breaking before your eyes talk about competing devotions how did you do that it was my let's put this in perspective going to Antarctica had been my lifelong dream since I was a little girl since I was eight years old I remember my uncle working down there as an engineer and I said to him I still remember saying to him in 1986 I'm going to go there I'm going to work there one day too and I had that opportunity I was selected as one of 80 female scientists from around the world to participate in this groundbreaking leadership and communication development program really down in Antarctica. So it's three weeks on a ship in Antarctica with these amazing female scientists. And, I mean, at the time I thought it's only a few weeks, you know. The alternative was basically other to do like six months with the Australian Antarctic Division or something like that. You know, for years I thought I'd let my dream had gone because I've got kids, I can't do it. And then this yeah. short one came and I thought I've got to take it. And I remember when I told my mum that I was accepted, she goes, oh, so you'll need childcare. Do you need a babysitter? And my mum had never really offered to have the boys before, but she knew how much that dream had meant to me. So she offered to come over and look after the kids. Um, but how did I get on? It was extremely hard. I was... I had to leave trusting that my boys were going to be okay with my mum. And at the same time, we were in Adelaide, but my husband was still working 
away at Roxbury Down. So he was fly and fly out. So he'd only be coming in on the weekend. So my boys would be entirely with my mum during the week and their dad would be around on the weekends. So I just had to trust, I guess. There's no other word for it. It was hard. I still, still remember the day in Argentina before getting onto the ship and I was, I was literally crying and there was another one of the female scientists came up to me and she didn't have kids, but she was very intuitive. And she just said, Laura, you know, you're, this is going to be okay. You've prepared these kids, you know, to be away and, and they're going to be so proud of you and you're showing them what they can achieve in their life. Mm-hmm. You know, basically we've, we've got you, they're going, to, they're going to be okay. But I was crying because I knew once I'm on that ship, I can't communicate with them for three weeks. So, you know, there's no Wi-Fi, <laughs> no, you know, there's a sea phone, but, you know, you can call for, I don't know, $20 a minute or something like that, but it's literally just going off into the yonder, the most remote part of the planet, and um, being out of contact. So it was uh, literally I had no control and that was quite, quite confronting. But wow. I, had, I had the support of this 80 women around me just, and there were other mothers on that trip too that were feeling, you know, similar emotions but um yeah I just I guess I had that support around me and I just I just had to trust my mum I didn't have any other option but what that woman said to you is so important for us to remember that in the moment it feels like you know we're not choosing them which is so heartbreaking because mm-hmm. that's not ever what how we want to feel or for them to feel that way but actually in the long term, they'll know that their mum was chosen to go to Antarctica. Like it's this constant battle between choosing now and choosing the bigger picture. It's, it's a beautiful reminder. Thank you. Thank you for that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so when you returned, you've obviously now had a much clearer diagnosis and understanding of what's happening with Matthew. How has mm-hmm. that been? Um, it's been hard. There's really no other word for it. So I came back and then I basically, you know, my mum left straight away and my husband was still commuting. So for the next few months I was single parenting during the week and then my husband would be around on the weekends. And But I'm still trying to settle these kids into a new city, a new school, and I had to settle myself into a new city. Like I didn't have friends here. I didn't have a network here. Um, so that was really hard. And of course we were still working through these, uh, psychology appointments, OT appointments, pediatrician appointments, and then, and working with these new teachers and seeing how he's settling into the new classroom and still no one would say, like, and this is for the other mums out there. No one is going to come up to you and say, I think your child has autism. I think you should go get him assessed. No one says it. It's like it's this dirty word and it's like then that teachers are actually not allowed to say it. Right. They can make recommendations. I think, you know, your child's struggling in this area, this area, in this area. We recommend you see an OT. We recommend you see a psychologist. But they won't actually say we think your child has autism spectrum disorder. So I happened to really click with one of my son's teachers last year. I clicked with both of them actually. He had, he had two and they were, you know, both part-time. They they you know, two teachers, one class. But one of them, I just was on a similar wavelength and I said, oh, look, you know, off the record, <laughs> you know, um, I'm not going to get angry or upset with you. I'm, I need to know. 
you work with kids day in, day out. You've literally seen thousands of kids in your career. I haven't. I've worked with, you know, I've been in engineering. I work with numbers, people, plants and equipment, you know, operational equipment. I don't work with kids. The kids I know are my kids and, you know, my friend's kids. Um, tell me what you're saying. Is this, is this something else? Is, and actually said, is it, is it autism? Do I, you know, do I need to get assessed? And they said, oh, we can't actually say that, Laura, but we strongly recommend you get him assessed. You know, they still wouldn't actually say it. I'm just like, I'm not going to hate you if you tell me, like I'm out of my depth here. And I just want to keep saying that over as the year progressed, my son's, let's call them symptoms or struggles, got worse and worse and worse. So there were, there's days when he couldn't talk. There's days I'd go to pick him up from school and we couldn't find him. He'd be hiding under a table He'd constantly retreat to the library at lunch times to escape everyone. He wasn't playing with any friends in the schoolyard. He'd take his teddy bear to school every day, like a nine-year-old boy with a teddy bear in the playground. Now that's his comfort. Um, he started doing a lot of repetitive behaviours, like if he touched one corner of the chair with his right hand, he'd have to touch the other corner of the chair with his left hand. Everything had to be balanced. Uh, these little rituals for things. His sleep was terrible it was a rare night where he could fall asleep before 10 p.m and now a lot of autistic children and adults really struggle to fall asleep and this was our life at home we kind of accepted our kids just don't get to sleep before 9 30 10 o'clock but it was just getting worse and worse and like the anxiety leading up to bedtime for all of us because I'm getting tighter and more exhausted and my kids just aren't sleeping and yeah I mean this I can share some ways how to get around that it um, it's basically ends up being, you know, a paediatrician can help you get melatonin, which is a natural, you can get it off the counter in the States, but you need a script for it in Australia, but a do- low dose of melatonin helps children fall asleep because a lot of autistic children, their bodies don't produce melatonin. Mm. But just the, just the, um, the different symptoms, he's wandering. He was always a kid that wandered. And of course, in a small town, it's okay for your kid to wander a little bit. But in a city, it's it's harder. And, I mean, it was only a, couple, uh, a few months ago I actually lost him at Adelaide Oval at a cricket match. He just wandered. We went off to get some food because he couldn't sit still in the chair and he was getting more and more agitated. So let's go for a walk. And I'm at the counter paying for the food and he disappeared. He just wandered into the stadium. I'm just, ah, uh, man, what do you do when you lose your child around 60,000 people or something. I mean, he popped back out of the crowd. I mean, it was probably only a couple of minutes later, but it felt like 10. But um, like just a wandering or we'd go out, you know, let's go to the market. Like the meltdowns increased. So it got so much every time we left the house, he'd have a physical meltdown where he'd be on the, on the ground screaming or thrashing about, hands over his head, blocking his ears. Like it's just like the world is too much. So his body has become so um, overwhelmed with the sights and sounds of the world that just can't take anything like the body or thought patterns and things just stop. So all of these symptoms just get getting worse and worse throughout the year. Um, so oh, Beautiful. My heart is just breaking here you talking about this. Like 
I, I know that we're all feeling the same thing to watch this unfold in front of you. It, it's just heartbreaking, isn't it? Yeah, and at the same time, he's a beautiful, sensitive, kind, caring, intuitive boy. Yes. Intelligent boy. So this is the same boy that could make a movie. He'd write the most amazing stories. He can he read books years beyond his age. So the intelligence is there, but that's the thing with autism and what used to be called Asperger's, which now a lot of autism spectrum disorder, it's just a big spectrum. You can have, you know, and it, you know, it's characterised by, um, I guess, it's, it's a developmental disorder of variable severity. It's a spectrum characterised by difficulty in social interactions and communication and restricted or repetitive patterns of thoughts and behaviour. So you can have kids with very high IQ that are autistic, but you call it a traffic jam in their body, like the brain's not connecting with the body because there's all these sensory inputs that, you know, they can't focus on schoolwork or learning because, oh, that, that bird chirping outside the classroom is louder than the teacher's voice. They can't filter it out. The brain can't filter all these senses. Wow. And at the, at the other end of the spectrum, you can have kids, you know, non-verbal children, children and adults, but their non-verbal can also be extremely intelligent kids. They just just can't speak. But of course, you can have also low IQ or you know children that can't toilet train as well. So there's a very broad spectrum. So um, I guess we've got a child who would be classified as high-functioning autism because he can talk, he can learn, and well, they think one, one day he'll be able to, hopefully with the right therapies and treatments, he'll be able to live independently. We're hoping that's the case. But there's actually three different levels of autism when you're diagnosed and he's been diagnosed as level two, which requires substantial substantial support. So he can't get himself ready for school in the morning and he'll turn 10 this year. He just literally, it's beyond him to be able to work out what to do and break it down in steps and plan and do those steps. Steps we take for granted, like get ready in the morning, get dressed, have breakfast and stuff. You've got to take him along every little step of the way. So um, so what about you? Uh, you know. <laughs> Far out, yeah. What about you, beautiful? Because this is what our, both of our intentions, as I said at the beginning, is to... Mm-hmm is to bring this conversation to other women who are at the start or maybe the middle of this journey or even just a mama who's struggling with something in her life that's really scary and unknown and it hasn't even unfolded properly yet. How are you doing? Yeah, some days I'm doing all right and some days I'm not I'm not doing, you know. I'm not doing very well at all. Um I can talk about the day of diagnosis because that was interesting and the emotions that came with that. So it was during school hours and, I, you know, we went and did the, well, two hours or whatever it is with three different health professionals. Um, there was a speechy there, an OT and a psychologist, and then we got the diagnosis. And I, I knew by then he was going to, he was autistic and, but I wasn't prepared for him to be that level two. I thought, oh, it's not that bad, surely. Um, and I was there by myself. My husband was working that day. I don't think, you know, I thought he'll come if he wants to and he didn't come. Now I kind of, you know, thought I should have actually asked him really to come. He's kind of like, oh, Laura can do this. You know, you know when you're capable, you do things. Yeah. I was at that 
diagnosis by myself and then I came back home and my initial intention was I'll just give him the afternoon off and we'll hang out. But I thought, I oh, know I got it. I can't. So I dropped him back to school. He was happy, oblivious to everything. I just came home and howled. I have never cried that hard in my life. And then I just cried it out for a half an hour. And then I actually rang a friend and um, I reached out. I've got a, a few friends with autistic children. They're a couple of years ahead of me on the journey. And I rang both of them that day in tears and one of them just let me cry and she just stayed on the line for a while and and then she was just just all positive and Laura this is actually a good thing you know you've you know now you've got the diagnosis this opens doors you can get help you can get support now don't focus on the label he's still your beautiful little boy he hasn't changed and that was such an amazing piece of advice he hasn't changed he's still beautiful, clever, intelligent Matthew. Your, your child isn't, he's not broken. He doesn't need to be fixed. He's, you're just going to get some support now. And my other friend that I rang to, she it was just exactly the same. So I've got those two incredibly strong mamas in my court and I'm, you know, I'm clipping them now. <laughs> We're starting to bond together. I'm picking them up all over the place. Um. Yeah, so that was September. So since then we've, you know, we've been, uh, we've had to apply for the NDIS funding, which what are we now, April? So we, we've just got the letter this week that it's finally coming. Um, the the paediatrician, psychologist and IT, they were very, they're supportive to me as well and helped me unpack it. But I guess what has helped me the most has been my yoga. Now I've been I practiced yoga for about fifteen years, but the, since moving to Adelaide, there's an amazing um, studio that does Yin restorative yoga, and I seriously can't get enough of Yin yoga. Yeah. So I get there about four days, four sessions a week, and I crave it. My body craves it, and it's just really helped me to process. And I guess the medicine, you know, that would. We might do meditation classes as well. Started taking more baths, more beach work, walks, just really seeking out solitude. I guess I've had a lot to process. Um, and the other thing I did, I just really, I just had to really pull back in a lot of areas of my life. I pulled back a lot in my online business, which was really, really hard. I'd already stopped doing my live launches and everything about you know, a year earlier because getting ready to move to Antarctica and move the family, not move, no, not move to Antarctica, go to Antarctica <laughs> and move the family. I pulled back all that cortisol-inducing, stressful, push, push, pushing in my business. And you're going to laugh at this, but I actually, um, a part-time engineering opportunity fell on my lap. Of and, course it did. Wow. Yeah, and if there's one thing I learned from that time in Antarctica with those 80 other amazing female scientists and some engineers was that I need to be around people. I was an extrovert working at home and I'd created a business that had isolated me from society. And in, if I was really honest with myself, I wasn't happy at all. So I came back from Antarctica. I'd had the best time. I'd had a time of my life, the best time I'd had in years 
And it wasn't because I was in Antarctica. Mm. It was because I was just with this group of amazing women. Mm. And that was my learning from it. So when this opportunity fell on my lap, I thought, is taking it going to be like a failure, just saying, look, my life's too hard at the moment, I'm pulling back my business, you know, I'm just making the decision to press the stop button on aspects of my business and then take a job, is that a cop-out? And then I was just sort of, and again, a couple of friends said this to me, you know, it's okay to take the easier choice sometimes, Laura. It doesn't always have to be hard. And that engineering job was the easy, as a senior engineering job too, um, that would be hard for a lot of people, but it was so much easier <laughs> choice for me. And I don't even see it like the easy option. Yeah. To me, it feels like the, this podcast I did months ago, which just resonated so much. I had to edit it afterwards because I was howling, crying in it. I sounded ridiculous. You could hear my snot. <laughs> oh, gosh, bubbling away. <laughs> because this beautiful woman, Deborah Poneman, said to me, your dharma will wait for you. You know, what you're meant to do will wait for you. And when I heard you just say that a part-time scientist job landed in your lap, I just thought, of course, because that is part of who you are. Yeah. This is the thing. As, as we navigate motherhood, we make choices that work for us right now, which might be an online business, going part-time, choosing a different path. But if a core part of who you are as a scientist, which is who you are, mm. waits and it comes back when it's ready. And, and I think it is a beautiful balance of all that you need right now. It makes, as soon as you said that to me, I was like, well, of course it did because that's yeah. a part of who you are. Yeah, I think yeah. that's so powerful. And I left my environmental engineering 10 years ago, not because I didn't love engineering. I'd loved it up until that point. It was because it didn't work with around having babies. But the world has changed in the last 10 years and this job's with a consulting company. I can work from home. I can go in late. As long as I get my hours done and deliver, it doesn't matter how I do it. Exactly. Yeah. I I feel the same about journalism. It's starting to sneak back in 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 really interesting ways in my life and and I just watch it and think, isn't that interesting? I thought I was done with that. But actually it's a core part of who I am. Wow. I I just want to backtrack. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to interrupt your beautiful reflections, but I think it's really important for everyone to hear this, that that yin yoga, those Mm -hmm. walks on the beach, the baths, that I just wanted to cheer when you said that because that is your nervous system healing. That's giving you the space to process everything, but also then to fill yourself up so you can be who you need to be for Matthew and your other son and your husband and everybody else. And so I just want to cheer that Mm -hmm. that's what you're doing to look after yourself because that is true self-care. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I feel the need, I should say this too, that somewhere along the line I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's, an autoimmune condition. Oh, hello, Hashimoto sister. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I was processing, dealing with all that at the same time. Oh, wow. Well, yeah, there's no surprise that came into my life as well, given what I was carrying for so long. Yes. Um, Yeah, so the yin yoga has helped so much there too, as has a naturopath, as has, you know, having some counselling and psychology support for myself as well. Um, Amazing. Yeah, 
But that part-time engineering has got me around people working in a team, achieving on projects that I've enjoyed working on and getting paid for the privilege of working on and getting those pats on the back and, again, getting me just around people, which I, you, we underestimate the importance of community and social interactions. Yes. You know? And, and you know what, although being in business on your own as a mother and a woman is amazingly empowering in so many ways, there are so many great benefits of walking into a job, knowing exactly what you need to do, not holding anyone else's hand and walking out at the end of the day saying, I've done that now. And that sometimes is exactly what we need. I, I totally understand that. Mm. Mm. I still, I mean, it's part time. I've got a, a foot in two camps. So obviously, do how beautiful. Yeah, still running the business, but I'm making the business easier. So popping things on Evergreen. I've got a new VA um, helping out. Uh, obviously, um, yeah, I can earn more in my engineering position that that can cover her wage and some. So it's it's starting to work and getting some more help in the home too. So that's allowed room for. You know, we had an au pair come into our lives for eight, uh, five months, which was amazing. And just getting some extra help there. We're still working out the best, um, the best mix of the help because au pairs flittering in and out isn't great for children who need consistency and us parents who need consistency. So we're still, we're still learning it all um, and learning how best to support our son. But yeah, we're... We're progressing. Oh, you, you're doing an amazing job. So such an amazingly powerful conversation and interview. Thank you. I want to finish by asking you, and maybe you don't know the answer to this yet. Maybe it's too early to ask. But what do you think all of this is teaching you, you as Laura, the woman, the mama, the, the human being? What do you think you're learning through this experience with Matthew? Yeah, might be too early for the big lesson. I mean, I've learned some things now. I can share some of the things I've learned. Um, but what about you? What do you think you're learning about yourself? Like just for you, are you stronger than you thought you were? Are you, uh-huh. no, what about you, the transformation of you through this? Um, I'm a better person without a doubt. I'm a better mother. I'm a better friend. I hope I'm a better wife. Um, and I, I say that with conviction because I'm so much more compassionate now. I can look out at the world and I'm more accepting of everyone's differences because I need everyone to be more accepting of my own family and our quirks and differences and I'm out in public and my kid's screaming at the top of their lungs. It's not a two-year-old tantrum. This is a, almost a 10-year-old tantrum. It's, it's louder. It's more visible. People aren't, the average person is not accepting of, you know, a nine-year-old boy who's being naughty. You just need to discipline them more. So I'm much more compassionate of others and, um, and supportive of my friends, my amazing new friends that I'm accumulating who have children with special needs as well and helping them advocate for their children when I can see when their children are are treated badly, which has happened. Um, So I'm very, I guess I'm strong, like that tiger mum 
Yes. Yeah. Becoming an advocate. Um, my husband and I, we participated in Walk for Autism just a few weeks ago and raised, you know, a couple thousand dollars for autism awareness, acceptance and research. Um, but yeah, I don't want to be the poster mum either. I still want to get the support and help for myself as I process it all. But yeah, I just, I guess my big lesson is I'm, I'm more accepting, I'm more compassionate and I'm becoming more accepting of myself in the process too. Like it's okay to not do anything else today, Laura. It's okay to not leave the house today. It's okay not to record that podcast today, you know. It's yes. okay to just leave that mess in the house, you know. It's okay if your son he doesn't have to go to bed. It's okay if he skips a shower tonight. So I'm learning to... um not be so perfect in all areas of my life as well. Oh, wow. And that circles right back to what we started with, with that, you know, I think the very first thing you said was I still struggle with that ambition. I still struggle with those feeling like I need to do all of these things and that's the gift that he is giving you at the moment. I am so grateful for this conversation and that you reached out to me and and said, I think I'd like to talk about this. I think that this is going to be one of my most shared podcasts. Thank you so, so much for being so brave and vulnerable. Thanks, Amy. Thank you. Isn't that a truly beautiful insight into what is possible how resilient we actually are, who we can be when sometimes the scariest things happen in our life. We will rise up. We will find a way. We will love more than we ever thought possible and we'll be okay. I am so grateful for Laura to reach out to me, to share with all of you. And if you are going through any challenge whether it's with your child or in your own life, please know you've got this. Look after yourself. Make sure you're doing all those beautiful restorative practices and surround yourself with love and support because this is what we do. We have to honour ourselves so we can be there for others. Please share with anyone in your life who might need to hear this message at the moment. Much love and until next week, Satnam. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion apply. See site for details.